Our guest is an auditor, consultant, and leading expert in the area of environmental, social, and governance issues for the Canadian business community. A speaker, author, and facilitator on the impacts of climate change and opportunities on governance, risk management, and performance. She's a board member for Leading Change, a nationwide movement for young leaders and sustainability professionals uh, accelerating action on attaining a uh, sustainable, prosperous, and socially just uh, future within a generation. Recently appointed the CEO of ESG Global Advisors. She's here today for a deeper conversation. Uh, about all things ESG, effectively linking climate change with financial and operational performance and long-term value. Please join us in welcoming Sarah Keys to the leadership stand. Thank you so much for having me, Gary. Well, and, and I want to dive right in for a moment. ESG, when we talk about ESG, which sounds like, you know, Sarah, the latest, greatest acronym for you, it's much more. It's a mission. It's a calling. Environmental, social governance, and we might as well take the gloves right off. Why does this matter? And why does it matter now for the people watching or listening? Sure, it's a great question and one I get asked a lot, as you might imagine. Uh, this ESG acronym has really popped up into the mainstream media. It's hard to get away from it. And it's definitely been one of the hottest topics in the global capital markets in 2021. And I expect much the same in 2022. Why is it important for business leaders to pay attention? Well, simply put, ESG factors can impact the value of your company in the short, medium and long term. Effectively, why it's become such a big issue today, the pandemic put quite the spotlight on it. It kind of acknowledged that we as a society cannot separate ourselves from the environment upon which we depend. And guess what? Our economy depends on that society. So really recognizing some of those planetary limits and societal boundaries, the things we're willing to stand for and not stand for, for the organizations we invest in, we buy from, and we work for. So in, uh, is there a metaphorical way you can paint the picture? Um, so just for example, and, and I'm just searching here for the person who maybe runs a $10 million company that has three retail locations, Sarah, and I'm trying to get into the nitty gritty of the relevance. So just as the big short essentially was the movie from Hollywood that captured the essence of what the Wall Street crash was all about back in 2008. Is there something you can point to metaphorically that explains why ESG matters? I love that question, Gare. And actually the fact that you referenced the big short, uh, for those of you who have not watched it, spoiler alert, but for those who have, you'll recall at the very last segment of that movie, they said, what's his next big short? And the answer was water. And so I'm gonna draw on that. Um, the reason that ESG matters uh, is fundamentally it poses systemic macroeconomic financial stability risks. Uh, we're talking about climate change. Here's a metaphor for you, Gare, as the biggest of the Russian dolls. You know those dolls that go one inside the other inside the other? Climate change is that big Russian doll. So what we see is a huge amount of attention as well as capital 
focused on tackling this global existential threat. And I think fundamentally for the business owner who has three retail locations, maybe, you know, a $10 million revenue, I mean, this is relevant to them in the context of three different ways. First of all, who they're selling to, those people may care very deeply about these issues and are seeking to really vote with their dollars in terms of what companies they want to support. Uh, we've seen a lot of organizations realizing not only does it pose a risk, but there's a huge opportunity if you can prevent uh, customers from having to incur significant environmental damage by buying your product. The second reason is all about social. It's all about the ability to attract and retain good talent. And I mean, if we look across Canada, we're really talking about a knowledge-based economy. This is all about people. Our greatest assets go up and down in the elevators every day. And these people want to work at organizations that align with their values. And don't go any further than asking a millennial or a Gen Z. Uh, we've seen these trends and they're now the largest generation in the workforce. And the third reason that that small business owner might want to care is that they may be in the supply chain of a large public company who's facing a lot of investor pressure to address these issues. And more and more these big companies, they're being held accountable for their supply chains. So it could mean consequences for those who want to supply to some of these larger global corporations and can't meet those RFP criteria anymore if they don't have a good ESG strategy. I, I'm just in my mind listening to you right now, Sarah, I'm going through multiple domino effects of what this means. Uh, right away, I, you know, right or wrong, good or bad, I, I, I can visually see the boomer CEO over the age of 60 who would prefer to stick his head in the sand and wait till it all goes away. Sorry, I see that. But also I weigh that against what is very, very clear now throughout every um, business category, nonprofit category, the war for talent, I call it the second war for talent, is very, very real. Very, very real. So let's start there with uh, a head in the sand approach, the ostrich approach, and how it could negatively impact your ability to get, let's say, good people. I love that question, Gare. And you know, that, that picture of that CEO that you just painted is exactly who I tend to work with on a day-to-day -day basis. So at ESG Global, I work with the CEOs of some of uh, the largest Canadian publicly traded companies all the way down to kind of owner operated and managed businesses, right? And um, you know, they've built successful careers without having to think about ESG. So why is this important now? Uh, well, I think fundamentally we've seen a real shift uh, acknowledged and actually led by some of the biggest businesses in the world. So uh, we saw the business roundtable, which includes the CEOs of all of the Fortune 500 companies in the United States, some of the most powerful companies in the world, in 2019 saying they're actually marking a shift from that shareholder-centric model to a stakeholder-centric model. And you know, at that point about employees, they called them out specifically. The ability to attract and retain the type of talent that these organizations are looking for, they see now hinges directly on their management of ESG issues. And if they don't, they stand to lose a whole lot of reputational impact, right? There's a whole lot of brand loss, um, customer loyalty and loss there, but there's also, 
the fact that other competitors are moving in the space. So what we do see in ESG is no matter what the sector, a lot of companies are reacting to what a peer is doing. And a peer probably saw an opportunity, whereas a lot of folks, that traditional CEO, when they're coming to the table thinking about ESG, they're thinking about it in terms of mitigating risk, right? So how do I mitigate the risk in this war for talent? Well, your opportunistic peers have gone out and seen it as an opportunity, and they've gone and grabbed that talent before you've even started to wrap your head around what ESG actually means. So it's really quite fascinating to see organizations, I'll give you a Canadian example, Lululemon. During this pandemic, uh, they experienced an incredible amount of positive fanfare for the way that they treated their employees in that first round of layoffs in, in 2020. And you know what? Their brand has sustained that value um, all throughout the pandemic. I, I was, you know what, you anticipated my next question, which was, well, who are the companies doing it well? I, I think that always helps if, if you can look around and say, um, you know, oh, those folks, and, and you bring up Lululemon, I've got a family member, for instance, working there now. And, and, and so I'd like to hear you expand on that, Sarah, who can we look to as models in the business world that are actually embracing this um, and, and doing it well? Yeah, I love that question. And I think one of the big misconceptions when folks think about environmental, social and governance issues is that, you know, sustainability has always traditionally been associated with some of the, the worst offending industries, right? Oil and gas, mining, utilities. Um, ESG is definitely something that has expanded across all sectors. And so I'll give you a couple of examples of some amazing leading organizations in Canada. Uh, so we see Nutrien, for example, uh, working in the agriculture sector. Um, they've come up with a strategy to actually work with the farmers that they supply their fertilizers to, to help them figure out how to generate carbon credits from improvements in how they're managing their soil and fertile land to actually store and sequester carbon and generate a new revenue stream from it. Uh, this is going well beyond what they need to do to maintain those relationships with the farmers in terms of their fertilizer purchases. But what they see is a huge opportunity to enable those who are customers to be a catalyst in a low carbon transition. So you start to see these really unique relationships that help to deepen those bonds between companies and their customers. And that's a B2B example. You can think about more of a, a B2C example, uh, which would be Maple Leaf Foods, one of the first Canadian companies uh, to actually set a net zero by 2050 goal. And they're going forward to also, also have a science-based target, which means they're actually thinking about not only our, our products, the meats, for example, uh, that we cultivate and sell to our customers, we're not only thinking about our carbon footprint of that, we're going all the way down to where the cows are actually uh, raised on the farm and we're working with those suppliers uh, to help them green their, their footprint as well. So you can start to see that a lot of Canadian companies are using it as ways to deepen their relationship with suppliers, their relationships with customers and their relationships with employees all centered around the recognition that this creates real value, both top and bottom line for companies. Now, I know that you were just appointed uh, CEO of ESG Global on Canada Day of 2021. You're a true Canadian, uh, a fresh face on the leadership scene. But Sarah, I think a lot of people would be fascinated to know, like, where did this fascination with ESG come from in the first place? Can you expand on what got you hooked? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Garrett. And it's one too that I think a lot of people don't actually believe the answer. So I'll, I'll try it out on you and see what you think. Um, so I actually became, um, so I'm a chartered accountant uh, by background and I was doing my undergrad at McGill University. I was in my third year and as part of getting your Bachelor of Commerce, they said you have to take this mandatory course called the Social Context of Business. And it looked through all sorts of ESG issues. And I found myself quite troubled. I kind of realized that the path I was on to go and become a chartered accountant um, potentially could lead me to contribute to some of these problems as opposed to being part of the solution. And I thought, well, why isn't there uh, some sort of value being recognized? Surely these major issues like child labor and supply chains, uh, the impact of climate change, I mean, you name it, human rights, pay equity, diversity and inclusion. Um, why aren't these issues measured on the face of the financial statements? As an accountant, I thought, hmm, if it were to be measured, it might get managed. And if we were to recognize that there is an inherent value to our environment and the society in which it operates, uh, then we might place more emphasis on protecting it and sustaining it. And so I set out to uh, do my CA designation. I started out my career at PricewaterhouseCoopers. I was an auditor there. And I decided to focus on some of the industries that were the most challenged in terms of sustainability issues. So I've spent most of my career in professional services in mining and energy. Uh, and then I really knew that in order to take uh, my career to the next level, I needed to focus 100% in ESG. Uh, and I joined CPA Canada, where I led their research, thought leadership and guidance on all things ESG and climate change. And when I got the opportunity to join ESG Global at its inception, I couldn't resist. I love the story, the, the, the bare-knuckled accountant who suddenly fell in love with uh, societal impact, which leads to the question from your younger idealistic self. I can't help but draw, uh, and maybe you can expand on whether there's a parallel between John Elkington and his, um, it, it was the three Ps, right? It was um, people... Uh, the planet and profit um, and, and how that model uh, aligns with yours. Absolutely. I think uh, John Elkington, as well as the Brundtland report, which first kind of defined sustainability around, you know, being able to meet the needs of the current generation without compromising the ability of those future generations to meet those same needs, right? And it's intuitive. There's something human about it, I think, that we can all kind of grab onto and make sense to us. Um, what's really been fascinating for me is kind of thinking back to when I started my career and reading a lot about John Elkington and that triple bottom line uh, concept. You know, fast forward to today, we see that, um, you know, we haven't made enough progress at the pace and scale required. And it's interesting, you know, I, I faced a, a number of choices along the way of wanting to focus in sustainability. Uh, my theory of change is that until the capital markets uh, actually factor in these issues as a means of allocating capital uh, through debt or equity, then you're really not going to be able to affect the change that you want to make on that grand scale. And I've always been very outcomes focused. So if, uh, if my issue is all about real sustainable development uh, within planetary boundaries, I think you've got to bring the capital markets along and unharness, you know, unleash the innovation that is within the allocation of capital and competition. I like what you said about through it all, through all the numbers and the grand vision, there's a, there is an essential element now, and I think the pandemic has made us more aware of it than ever. It's being human. How, how do you communicate that factor, Sarah, in 
all the people you deal with on this issue? You know, it's really it's really interesting um, having been in the space for quite some time, and and as you acknowledge, kind of since the pandemic, since 2020, it's become much more mainstream. But I spent you know a large part portion of my career before it was mainstream, and I'm a huge believer in meeting people where they're at. So almost approaching it with some empathy and humanness right from the start. Um, so as opposed to kind of pointing a finger or suggesting anyone's at fault or to blame, really understanding what are some of their concerns and hesitations around talking about things like ESG and climate change specifically, which can be an extremely polarizing topic. And it's exactly why I focused uh, my career on becoming an expert in that space. And I think when you meet people where they're at, um, their human connection to it comes through as well. So I can tell you that in many times I've stepped into boardrooms uh, with a few kind of skeptical faces looking at me around the table. Um, and I actually intentionally focus because of that audience on financial impact and opportunity. I squarely frame ESG in the context of their fiduciary duty and responsibility as a corporate director of that company. And the amazing thing that I've witnessed time and time again, Gare, is they come to the human element all on their own. And it's really quite fascinating. There's always at least one person around the table who says, okay, I understand that we're doing this for our shareholders or to attract talent and to drive value, but can we all step back and say, this is the right thing to do? And those are the moments where I really do feel uh, like I'm in the business of changing hearts and minds as opposed mm -hmm. to uh, focusing on dollars and cents. I think you just said it beautifully. And, and what I hear, uh, Sarah, is expanding the conversation beyond doing what's right for our shareholders and the planet, but let's throw in our kids and grandkids while we're into this conversation as well. We've got a question from a viewer, uh, Sarah, that I think is so relevant, uh, talking about how ESG is driving conversations in boardrooms all over the world. But what about the reporting framework? Are there metrics that an organization should start with, for example? That's a great question, Garen. Thanks to the audience member who asked it, because I get asked that question a whole lot by uh, C-suite executives and boards trying to grapple with this. How do you know if your ESG strategy is actually working? Uh, and I think it's really twofold, right? There's, there's leading metrics and there's lagging metrics. There are things you can measure as an input to say, okay, um, how many additional health and safety checks have we put in place? That would be a good example of a, a leading metric. That'll tell you if you're driving towards some of those improved practices and outcomes. And that's really the second part, right? That's the lagging metric. What was the actual outcome? You know, to date, I think a lot of it has been focused on kind of risk mitigation. More and more, we're seeing outcome metrics being focused on impact. So for example, uh, if a company uh, invested dollars strategically in a community, a mining company, for example, uh, measuring the outcome in terms of well, what were the dollars used for? How did that support the socioeconomic development of the local community? Uh, another lagging metric related to uh, community relations would be the percentage of the local workforce uh, as part of your total kind of workforce on site. How many of those local workers are actually from the community in which you're operating? Uh, so it's really interesting to see the difference between leading and lagging. Leading you can do something about, so they're typically monitored more often, and lagging are the kind of things you end up reporting uh, to your stakeholders. And just to answer your other part of the question, which is the reporting frameworks. So 
uh, depending on who you're trying to communicate to, uh, the answer is really twofold. If you're trying to communicate to the investors or other financial stakeholders, you're typically going to use the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, the SASB standards. Uh, and those are ESG standards that are sector specific and they assign specific metrics for ESG topics of relevance for a company operating in that sector. The other big bucket is uh, if you're trying to communicate to a broader range of stakeholders and you're trying to communicate more on impact uh, to folks like employees, communities, and so on, uh, the Global Reporting Initiative or the GRI standards are the primary standards used by the biggest companies in the world. About 80% of the S&P 500 uh, issue a sustainability report aligned to GRI. As you're no doubt aware, uh, Sarah, one of the criticisms of John Elkington and the triple bottom line is that it got it morphed into yet just another business buzzword and a way for bean counters to come up with creative ways to get fake and phony awards. How do you ensure that no one out there takes your message and your mission and then tries to figure out a way to game the system? Yeah, it's really interesting because it's been a bit of a wild west lately. Uh, when we think about ESG, I think the attention to it, uh, there's not a lot of standards out there. And so the ESG 2.0 is going to be a whole lot more sophisticated. Uh, and I think that's where you're seeing the regulators stepping in to actually define what companies can and cannot claim and what investors can say is an ESG product. So you, you kind of actually see some of the the, uh, the police officers of the capital markets stepping in at a variety of different levels. Here in Canada, we saw Canadian Securities Administrators, Bank of Canada, as well as the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions all at the table. So there's definitely more rules to come to avoid some of that. Uh, curious to know, uh, since we uh, do call this podcast uh, the leadership standard, you take over as CEO uh, on Canada Day of 2021. You're the quote unquote leader, but uh, one of the standard questions we ask, uh, Sarah, is how do you define leadership? You know, Gare, uh, I tell you, my chair of my tech group did not pay me to say this, but quite frankly, uh, one of the biggest things I've taken away from my time at tech is that empathy is really core to my style. Um, I'm a very empathetic leader. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, when I think about leadership and stepping into this role, you know, we, we tell our clients uh, how important it is to have a really strong culture, tone at the top, uh, clear values and alignment where employees feel aligned, and that's how you generate value. Well, I've actually been able to take some of my own advice, which has been uh, a really incredible kind of expectation for me to kind of see what we can do with really strong human capital plans. And so one of the biggest things for me uh, is acknowledging that, you know, my, I have a team of passionate professionals. And one of my biggest challenges is that when you're so passionate, really got to manage that burnout. And so having a little bit of empathy allows me to put myself into my team's shoes and kind of understand where they're coming from uh, with respect to wanting to get things done, uh, but also helping them to understand as much as it does sometimes feel like we are saving the world, which is often a, an easy one to say, hey, you know, you're not saving lives. So, uh, you know, close the computer, uh, but reminding them that in the big picture of things, self-care and taking care of uh, you know, their lives and having that balance is an essential part to their performance and contributions at work. So really living those social values of sustainability is really my leadership style. What about influences and mentors? Are there two or three people more than 
any that stand out as helping you develop your leadership style and skills? You know, I, I would be remiss not to talk about two of my oldest mentors. Uh, they've been with me, you know, since early days of my career, uh, and their names are uh, Bob Willard and Alan Willis. And uh, they're two dear friends of mine. Uh, and the three of us spend quite a bit of time uh, chatting about all things ESG and sustainability issues. Um, Bob is a sustainability pioneer. I met him during my time at CPA Canada, and he's actually wrote, written a number of books on uh, sustainability, one of which he got a PhD for. Um, and he really introduced me to the concept of situational leadership. And that being, you know, you actually adapt your leadership style, not based on the individual, but also based on the task they've been assigned. And that small four by four matrix that Bob introduced me to many years ago has come in handy time and time again, uh, as I'm coaching my team members through different tasks. And then my other mentor is Alan Willis. And Alan is a fellow CPA who saw the light far earlier than me uh, and is actually one of the individuals whose early work uh, in sustainability was part of what I had researched when I was doing my undergrad at McGill, uh, trying to figure out if it would make sense for a CPA to get into this space. I read the work of Alan Willis, um, pioneering thought leader, former partner at Deloitte, uh, and a dear friend of mine. And we consistently get to banter back and forth about all things ESG and sustainability reporting, because uh, you know we love to have our, our nerdy accountant uh, battles about materiality. So these two gentlemen are spectacular mentors to me and dear friends as well. I'm going to pay you a compliment. You strike me as a student of the game, as it were. And, and, and so in that spirit, um, how, how would you explain, what have you determined to be uh, the common denominators, to use CPA language, what are the common denominators in terms of why people succeed with leadership, but others struggle and ultimately sometimes fail? You know, I love that question, Gare. I think for me, uh, humility is a huge one, right? Um, the ability to actually ask oneself and take a postmortem and say, you know, what could I do differently next time? I think that openness and, and honesty with oneself in terms of humility, knowing that as a leader, you're not always going to have the answers, nor are you always going to have the right answer, um, is a critical, critical piece and skill to me. I think, I think the second one, and it goes absolutely hand in hand with humility, is self-awareness. Um, to really know oneself in a way that you know, you can lead accordingly, even just to understand uh, when one is kind of not feeling 100% themselves, uh, to be able to communicate that with humility to their team, uh, to let people in and to build that trust through those two kind of pieces, sharing who you really are with authenticity and self-awareness, and then being humble, I think are two really important skills that I've seen time and time again in leaders. And quite frankly, you know, one of my biggest pet peeves from a leadership standpoint is that old school attitude of governing with fear. I'm more of a kill them with kindness kind of person. Um, so that's one for me that quite frankly uh, is, you know, one of those things that I experienced in my earlier stages of my career, uh, managers kind of ruling with an iron fist with fear. Uh, it was not a great motivator for me. In fact, it was a motivator to uh, move on <laughs> to a new job. Well, here, here's a chance, Sarah, for you to dive into the deep end of the humility pool. They say there's no better teacher than failure. Can you point to a specific story or event where it's something you ultimately failed at, but ha has made you the leader you are today? 
Oh my gosh, I have plenty and plenty of micro level failures, no doubt. Um, but I think, you know, first and foremost, one of my biggest, um, my biggest failures uh, has been in exercising the level of patience uh, required really to kind of get through uh, difficult times, right? It's, I think one of the biggest things that I've failed at and I've failed time and time again uh, is not taking that step back, taking that, that patience and saying, you know, if I really look at the situation, I could think more clearly if I applied more patience, right? To have a snap uh, reaction to something I think is certainly uh, an area that I've had to work on. And quite frankly, in my earlier days of my career, uh, particularly while I was doing my CA designation and I was early in my 20s, I really needed to learn that level of patience and the ability to kind of compartmentalize, I think, you know, separating out uh, some of the personal emotion that comes with working those long hours and feeling burnt out and exhausted from the task at hand and, you know, the bigger picture of why one is really putting their head down and doing it. So it's really been kind of character-based for me and a kind of an evolution and a maturity more than uh, a specific incident of failure, more of a kind of whole bunch of micro opportunities for progress over perfection. I know that, uh, you love the four agreements from Don Miguel Ruiz. What parts of the four agreements do you uh, most resonate with? Yeah, so I think, you know, the four agreements uh, is a very simple, easy read, um, but I think it applies in every aspect of life. And I think I'm actually with humility working on all four of these uh, consistently, both personally and professionally. Uh, you know, the first is to be impeccable with your word, never to do anything, to say anything uh, that one doesn't wholeheartedly believe and mean. Uh, the second is to always do your best. And what I love about always doing your best is your best is different based on the stress and the tension and the circumstances in your environment. So having that little bit of grace for yourself uh, and know that your best looks different on every other day. Um, the third is always do your best, never take anything personally. Now there's my biggest development point. Um, that was definitely one I think, uh, and, and still, you know, sometimes what you're saying is not gonna resonate. So not everyone's gonna like you, right? So not taking uh, things personally is a really important one. And the fourth one, don't make assumptions. And I think this one is a really tough one for the human brain. Uh, it naturally tries to uh, make connections based on information and our historical experiences. And I think that's where the danger is. Uh, making assumptions really doesn't allow you to kind of see the full picture and all of the possibilities as to why something uh, might be happening. So don't make assumptions. It's one that sticks with me. You know, I think they're just life lessons for personal and professional, and I'm a huge believer we bring our whole selves to work. It's really hard to, to separate who we are. It's been said, Sarah, that uh, leaders are readers. Uh, just curious, what are you reading right now? Are there three or four books lying around that have caught your fancy? Absolutely. So I just finished reading The Alchemist um, over the holidays. Absolutely love that. Uh, an incredible read, again, personal and professional, and it's all about living one's personal legend. So the idea being uh, that one is kind of born with this North Star within them, and it's about going through life and trying to find what that personal legend is. And then uh, when you feel that fear stepping closer to the fire, which I absolutely love, I think that's how strength and resilience are born. And then more specifically to my ESG world, uh, reading um, Values by Mark Carney, um, former Bank of Canada governor, Bank of England governor, and a huge advocate for climate change and sustainable finance. It's quite a thick book, so it's a long read. 
Sarah, uh, are you ready for a little game we call Next Question? Yes. Okay, here, here, we, here we go. We're going to go up close and personal. One-on-one uh, -on -one dinner date with anyone, dead or alive, who would you dine with? I think I would go with Barack Obama. If day-to-day -day life at your company was a movie or TV show, what would it be? <laughs> uh, I, I really don't know. I'm not a huge, uh, not a huge movie TV person. <laughs> You're alone in your car. What do you think about the most? Work. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, in your home? What room resonates with you the most? I'm going to say my living room and my couch uh, where I'm, when I'm snuggled up next to my dogs. Segway into Pino and Porter, the dogs. What is it you wish the rest of the world knew about dog people? I think that the rest of the world should understand just how therapeutic and calming it is to have canines around and just how connected they are to kind of your emotions and what you're going through, even sometimes more than we are ourselves. Well said. Uh, if you could be any animal in the world, Sarah, what animal would you be? Oh, I think I would be a dolphin because the idea of kind of swimming through the ocean, traveling in a pod, and, and they're just such beautiful creatures. So I would be a dolphin. If you have a guilty pleasure, would you disclose on this program? Absolutely. It is reality TV. Do tell. <laughs> Everyone needs a bit of uh, junk food for the brain is kind of the way that I put it. I spend a lot of my, my time in highly uh, intellectual conversations and reading and podcasts and dialogues. You know, when I'm ready to turn off my brain, I just, you know, I love to keep up with the Kardashians. What can I say? Okay, so now that's a lovely way for us to segue yet gingerly once again into the Lipton Pivo survey in honor of inside the actor studio host James Lipton and the French journalist Bernard Pivot. Are you ready for this, Sarah? Go for it. Here we go. What is your favorite word? <laughs> uh, that is a very that is a very challenging question. My favorite word, serendipity. What is your least favorite word? Flesh. What turns you on? Physical activity. What turns you off? Arrogance. What sound or noise do you love? Kids laughing. What sound or noise do you hate? Kids crying. <laughs> what is your favorite curse word? The F word. What profession other than your own would you love to attempt? Marine biology. What profession under no circumstances would you ever, ever, ever do? Actuary. If heaven exists, what do you hope our heavenly father says when you arrive at the pearly gates? Welcome in, doors wide open. 
We have so much still to talk about because what your work involves at ESG, just through the course of this conversation, I can't help but think of the parallels to a movie released not too long ago, Sarah, with Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence. I have the suspicion that you too have seen Don't Look Up and understood it in terms of its not only global implications, but the local implications we all deal with in business. Absolutely. Yeah, I thought there was a lot of layers to that storyline. Is there a way you can expand on that and why that movie's relevant to the topic of what we're covering, the triple bottom line, and why environmental, social, and governance matters? Gary, I like the question because I think a lot of the media attention about Don't Look Up has rightfully focused on uh, the parallels of that comet to collide with Earth with uh, the issue of climate change. Hiding in plain sight, a clear deadline and timeline, clearly defined, guaranteed by science. Um, what I think was missed in some of the commentary, at least that I read, uh, was the social element of it, I thought, and the governance, right? So you kind of actually see, yes, it was talking about effectively that big environmental issue, but the societal response, so seeing some of the denial, um, some of the fear, the uh, social media kind of ostrich in the sand, head in, in the sand, uh, looking at social media and pretending it will go away, and then in and of itself kind of on the government side, you see that the political responses, the, the don't look up campaign, right? Um, I just thought, uh, you know, there were so many layers to it. But what I really took away from it was that if we don't, um, you know, if we try to address just one element of this, it won't be successful from that out outcome standpoint. Um, there was so many issues kind of illuminated there that I think our society is grappling with. Uh, tension and uh, obsession with social media, um, impacts of that short attention span we seem to have as a result of short catchphrases, misinformation, ignoring of facts. I mean, you name it. It's a, it's a bit of a perfect storm. And I thought the film was quite brilliant for that. I can't help but think, and you know, you and I are just meeting live on this podcast for the first time ever, but I look at you and I hear you and I would suspect you spend a lot of time in boardrooms, which are known for uh, a predisposition towards a lot of pontificating and posturing and positioning. Doing what you do, knowing that there's so much more at stake than just profit or loss, how do you help people get off their posturing and positioning pedestals? <laughs> it's a great question, Garrett. And not only do I spend a lot of time in boardrooms with my clients, but I also have the privilege of teaching in some of the corporate director trainings in this country. And, you know, I think it's really interesting because um, there is a certain humility that I've seen at the table in the last couple of years amongst board members, uh, the recognition that we do not have all the answers. And I think perhaps the pandemic was part of that, right? That humility of, my gosh, things can happen that we really, you know, maybe we're hiding in plain sight, similar to as the pandemic was, um, and hit us out of left field, and we ought to have known different, uh, but it's about making some progress as opposed to trying to be perfect. I think a lot of board members uh, showing up with a bit more humility 
humility uh, at the table and recognizing they they don't know what they don't know. And climate change is one of those really big topics uh, that we see corporate directors paying more attention to. Um, I think what's really important, actually, what I think is one of my uh, superpowers in terms of actually being able to produce a climate change educational session that resonates with a board um, is also not to be too evangelical uh, about the issue. Um, you know, I think uh, if we think about human psychology, another area of interest, uh, personal interest of mine, um, we know that human beings don't respond well to change and we know that they certainly don't respond well to change uh, when it's shoved on them unwillingly. Uh, so again, I think it's about bringing them along and opening their eyes to the fact that change might actually be a good thing. One of my favorite comics, uh, it's, a, it's a great little comic that I've seen, is um, what if climate change is a hoax and we make the world a better place for no reason? And I think that captures it all. That's very, very well said, Sarah. As we uh, head to our wrap up, I, I can't help but wonder, do you have a, a personal creed or motto, four or five, six words that you live by? Um, I am here and this is now. Uh, is a really important phrase that I use uh, to keep me grounded and present in the current moment. And, uh, and when things get stressful, I often say this too shall pass. So those are two uh, really important creeds that I, I often recite to myself. And when we circle back to the beginning and reflect on everything we've talked about with ESG, uh, environmental, social governance issues that you're one of the forefronts uh, in terms of advancing the Canadian agenda. What's the number one question that leaders need to be asking right now? What is our ESG strategy and have we considered what our stakeholders expect of us? Sarah, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure, Gareth. Thanks for being a really fun interviewer. I appreciate it. Well, uh, and, and, and again, we're so fortunate and blessed here at the, the Leadership Standard uh, to have such fine individuals, uh, great leaders like Sarah Keyes joining us here from ESG Global. Uh, if you uh, were attending this uh, program live on LinkedIn and on other platforms, we certainly appreciate having you stop by. The full episode is going to be uh, posted in the not too distant future, but I want you to reflect for a moment on some of the things that Sarah talked about and why they mattered. I know for me, as I made a couple of notes here, I, I really uh, loved what Sarah referred to uh, in terms of not being evangelical and pushing an agenda down somebody's throat, rather instead letting people to arrive at their own conclusions about why ESG matters. So. Uh, that was my biggest takeaway, but what was yours? And if you want, uh, feel free to share your thoughts. Uh, my personal email is gare at garemaxwell.com. And we really appreciate, like we said, uh, Sarah Keys for joining us here today. If you want to know more about Tech Canada and its world-class leadership programs, check out the website, www.tec-canada.com. If you want to go absolutely bonkers over hitting the like button, the subscribe button, the share button. Go nuts, go crazy. Call it, if you will, uh, a way to celebrate Canadian participation at the Olympics because you just never know. We just might be able to inspire someone else to grab hold of the clutch and go 
full throttle in the new frontier. On behalf of everyone at the Leadership Standard at the head office in Calgary, Stephen, Alexander, Catronel, Mark, and everyone, this is Gary Maxwell. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time on the Leadership Standard. Thank you.